0: My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here, and I encourage you to, uh, if you have already closed that Bible, open it back up to Judges chapter 2 as we look at this story before us this morning. Also, while you're finding your way back there, note that in your program there's several upcoming events we want you to be aware of. Uh, We've got a seminar happening on why sexuality matters at the end of this month. We've got a women's brunch and a men's breakfast coming up and, uh, and uh, a few other things. So, please take note of those and think about who you might bring with you, and uh, uh, be praying for those events as well. But let's look at judges together. So, there's a game that's been making the rounds uh, in recent years called how to ruin something in four words. So, you know, how to ruin a date in four words, or how to ruin Thanksgiving, how to ruin dinner in four words. Uh, things like let's talk about politics. That'll, that'll ruin dinner, right? Or, sorry, I'm vegan now or something like that, right? No offense to vegans. I love you. I just don't know how to cook for you. But, uh, but let's up the stakes. Let's up the stakes just a little bit. Instead of ruining dinner, let's talk about ruining our faith or ruining the church. And instead of four words, let's see if we can do it in just three. Sound like fun? No, it's not fun, right? But it's real. It's real. And in the story before us in Judges, uh, we learn exactly how to do that, how to ruin your faith or ruin the church in just three words. Forget, forsake, and forfeit. Forget the Lord and His saving work for you. Forsake the Lord and serve other gods instead and forfeit any second chances He gives you. If you want to ruin your faith, that's a pretty sure way to do it. This chapter truly is a recipe for disaster. And what we have in front of us is really the second part of a two-part introduction to the book of Judges. Uh, Last week, we looked at part one in chapter 1, 1 through 2, 5, which uh, showed us what happens When God's people stop short of the mission God gives them, when they try and accomplish it or carry it out on their own terms instead of on God's terms. Israel failed to completely drive the Canaanites from the land, um, which was partly, you know, that instruction was partly God's promise to give them the land, it was partly God's judgment on the idolatry of the Canaanites, and partly God's protection of Israel from idolatry. But they didn't complete the job. They they failed to realize that their half-hearted obedience was, in fact, wholesale disobedience to God when it comes to His covenant with them. They were breaking the covenant by stopping short. And the consequence of that was that the Lord would no longer drive those nations out of the land. They would remain there as a snare and a trap. And so, basically, the, the results of their disobedience Uh, the, The form that God's punishment took was essentially to let them live with the consequences of their incomplete mission. So that's what we saw last week. As we come to the second part of the introduction, you probably noticed during the reading, especially if you were here last week, that a lot of the same events are discussed again in this second introduction. It starts again with Joshua and his death and then it tells us about Israel's failure, and then it concludes with the results of that, that God will not drive the nations out. So, it's covering some of the same territory, which reminds us or lets us know that, that the, this introduction, the second part, is meant to be read in parallel with the first part. It's not just continuing the story where it was left off in, in chapter 2, verse 5. It's giving us another angle on that same story to kind of fill out the introduction to help set the context for the story we're about to read through the rest of the book. And, and that the fresh angle that it gives us zeroes in on a, on a few different things. First, it, it emphasizes the contrast between this, these generations and the generation of Joshua in terms of their faithfulness to the Lord. We're going to see that. And then it zeroes in on the precise root of all of their failure, and it introduces to us the main characters of the book, the Judges, and the basic pattern of the book, this cycle of disobedience and discipline and and the Lord's deliverance that's going to shape everything we read in chapters 3 to 16. And it is not a pretty picture. It really is a recipe for disaster, how to torch your faith in three easy steps. That's basically what we see in these verses. And in a day when roughly 4,000 churches close their door every year in the United States, and where roughly 67% of teenagers who grow up in the church leave it when they leave the home, this is a story we need to pay attention to. A story we need to hear as we serve the Lord in a world where everyone does the right in their own eyes. We need to understand what God says about this recipe for disaster and, therefore, what the opposite of it looks like, what it looks like to be faithful and to pass the faith on for the sake of Christ. And any recipe begins with ingredients. So, we'll start there, Uh, or in this case with the missing ingredient, the forgetting the Lord and His saving work in chapter 2 verses 6 through 10. So, if you look again at those verses, again, the author starts by anchoring this story in the book that was just beforehand, the book of Joshua, where God brought His people into the land and instructed them to drive out the inhabitants, what we talked about last week. But in in re-anchoring the story in that book, uh, he repeats some of the exact wording from the end of Joshua 24, in order to highlight the faithfulness of Israel during the days of Joshua, under Joshua's leadership. And he frames it with one of the key words in our story, the word serve. So, if you look at verse 7, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. We're going to see that word serve four more times in our story. But this is the only time when that service, when the object of that service is Israel's God. This is the only time when He gets the service. And so, God's people served the Lord during Joshua's day and during all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Now, contrast verse 7 with verse 10. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers... And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. What's the missing ingredient? The centerpiece of Israel's recipe for disaster. They forgot the Lord and his saving work for them. It's like trying to bake bread without flour or or trying to make a quiche without eggs. It's the main ingredient. You can't do it. And, and so who is this lord whom they've forgotten and what is it that he did for his people? Well, for ancient Israel, Uh, The Lord had made Himself known preeminently through the, the incredible saving work He had just accomplished for them just a couple generations earlier in rescuing them from slavery in Egypt, in the Exodus. As God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, He says, "'Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians.'" that's who God is. That's who He has revealed Himself to be to His people, the God who knows them and sees them and saves them and brings them to where He wants them to be that He might dwell with them and be their God and they be His people. And and everything He promised here in Exodus 6, He has accomplished for His people Israel. This generation is in the land he, He promised to give them. And all Israel saw it, all Egypt saw it, all the nations around them heard what the Lord had done, how He revealed His majesty and His mercy, His holiness and His compassion in unparalleled and unmistakable ways through the Exodus. It's the same God who's revealed His unparalleled majesty and mercy, not just for Israel, but for all nations through the life, death, and resurrection of His eternal Son, Jesus. That's who God is. And God wants His people to remember that. He wants His people to remember that, never to forget the Lord and His work. Throughout Deuteronomy, as they're standing at the threshold of the land, He keeps reminding them over and over again, do not forget what you just saw happen. Do not forget who I am or what I've done. Deuteronomy 4, verse 9, only take care… And keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. Do not forget. And yet there arose another generation who did not know the Lord or the work He'd done for Israel. So, so, did Joshua and his generation, did they fail to pass it on, or did the next generation refuse to listen? We're not told. We're not told, you know, where exactly the baton got dropped. But if their generations were anything like those whose faith has degenerated in recent centuries, it was probably a little of both. When you think how many denominations and movements in our day started strong, started solidly, but slowly have lost the gospel over time. As most of you know, we recently moved here from New England. So, New England, this rich heritage of gospel witness, right? The, the uh, birthplace of the first great awakening. It's the home of stalwarts like Jonathan Edwards. It's the the launch pad of the modern Western missions movement, the Haystack Revival and those kinds of things, this incredible, rich gospel history. And yet today you can walk the streets of Boston and in all but very few historic churches you will find either a museum, a social activist club, or more often than not, Luxury condos and apartments. What you will not find in all but very few is a living, abiding witness to the gospel. The very land that sent the first missionaries from the United States across the globe is itself a mission field today. So, what did Israel actually forget? What did they forget? What does it mean that they did not know the Lord or the work He'd done for Israel? Well, as one author writes, it's not that they did not know about Yahweh, but that they did not know Yahweh, Yahweh being the, our best guess at the Hebrew pronunciation of God's proper name, the Lord, usually Lord in all caps in your Bibles. So, so it's that they did not acknowledge Yahweh, that Yahweh and His works didn't matter to them. They had no influence over them. So, so understand this. They almost certainly knew the stories, but those stories had no impact on their lives. They had the information. What they were lacking was faith, was relationship with and regard for the Lord. And that's what's ultimately at stake in remembering. We're not talking primarily about information here. Remembering is about believing and obeying. That's why Israel was instructed to tell the story over and over again and pass it on to the next generation, to reenact it through the, the, the feasts and the festivals, to celebrate it and pass it on the same reason that we rehearse the gospel every Sunday together as a church, whether in our songs or in our prayers or in the sermon or Scripture reading. We need to remember, and, and, and we rehearse it not because we think everybody forgot it since last Sunday, right? Now, of course, it's new information maybe for some of us. And, and, and we want to make sure we get it clear and help you see who God really is. But we go over the gospel not because we think everybody's probably forgotten it since last Sunday. It's not typically about the information. If you've been a Christian for a while or, or been involved in, in church, and the problem's not usually a lack of information. It's about believing what we believe. If that makes sense, it's about trusting and depending on what we know to be true and and taking that truth, being reminded of it, and intentionally applying the grace of the gospel to every part of our lives. If you want to torch your faith and ruin your church, start by assuming the gospel don't worry about rehearsing it, articulating it, celebrating it or applying it. Just tell me what to do. If we want to destroy Stonebridge's witness slowly and surely, then… then and, and if you find yourself at a place in life where… where you know, don't, don't go over that again. Just tell me what to do. If that's your mantra, tell me what to do, you're already down the road at losing the gospel because this is a supernatural thing. It's not what we do for God, it's ultimately what He's done for us, and bringing that to bear on our life and our faith. As Don Carson has said, it only takes three generations to go from preaching the gospel for a church, to go from preaching the gospel to denying the gospel. One generation to preach it and believe it, the next generation to assume it yeah we already know all of that and the third generation to deny it to lose the supernatural work that god does we cannot assume the gospel we must actively rehearse it and review it so that we can remember it and apply it it's not just information it's relationship with and regard for the lord So, what happens when we do forget? What happens when we do forget? That's the next word, forsake. Forsake. The missing ingredient of remembering the Lord and His work leads us to a misplaced loyalty where we forsake the Lord and His ways and instead serve other gods. That's what we see in the next section in verses 11 to 23. So, if you look at verse 11… And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And don't miss the connection from verse 10, they did not know the Lord or his work. And verse 11, so they did evil in his sight. Don't miss that connection. And served the Baals. There's that key word again. They're serving, but they're not serving the Lord. Instead, they abandoned the Lord and the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. This is a total train wreck. I mean, this is the exact opposite of what they were supposed to do when they got into the land everything the Lord warned them about, everything, you know, the whole reason they were supposed to drive out the idolatrous inhabitants was so this would not happen. But this is what happens when you forget the Lord. When you lose sight of who He is and what He's done, we will naturally give our loyalty and devotion and trust and allegiance and service to some other god. To a false god that doesn't deserve it, that can't deliver us, and that will ultimately disappoint. Whether we're talking about the, you know, physical statues of wood or metal or stone from the ancient world or from uh, cultures around the world today, or whether we're talking about the, the idols of the heart that we tend to worship in the West, things like money and pride and power and sex and education and career and fame and so on anything that we treat like our functional God, this is what is going to give me life, this is what's going to give me security and satisfaction and significance, and I must hold on to it at all costs. Anything that occupies that space in your heart other than the God who made you, that's your idol. And it's a sham. It is a cheap imitation that deludes God's people, and that deprives God of His glory, and that makes God angry. That makes God angry. They provoked the Lord to anger, which might make it sound like God's a little bit insecure, But this is the kind of righteous, jealous anger that wells up when someone who has committed themselves to you wholly decides to give themselves to someone else. Elsewhere in chapter 2, God describes Israel's idolatry as prostituting themselves or whoring after other gods. Verse 17. And understand the picture there. That's not Israel visiting a prostitute. That's Israel opening up shop, turning on the red light, and saying to all the gods of the other nations, come on in. That's what they're doing. If you found out your your spouse was moonlighting as a prostitute, would you be angry? Yes! Yes! Rightly so and jealously so, not because you hate your spouse, but because you love them. In the same way, as one author writes here, God's anger against Israel in their sin is not opposed to His love. It's an expression of it. It's because He loves His people and cares about His relationship with them that He responds with right Anger when they turn from Him and prostitute themselves. His anger is that of the innocent, jilted lover. His love is that of the wonderfully forgiving husband. And that's what we see as this chapter unfolds and as the rest of the book unfolds. God's love for His wayward people in action as He continues to respond to their chronic disobedience with both discipline and deliverance. What we often call the cycle of the judges, it always starts with Israel's disobedience. If you look again at verse 11, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That we are going to see that phrase again and again in this book. Once again, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And and we see it usually at the start of a new cycle, of a new judge story. Toward the end of the book, that phrase gets mutated, and God gets dropped out of it completely, and it, it becomes, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, which is the same thing as evil in the eyes of the Lord. We just now, we're the whole measure of the whole thing, right? So it starts with Israel's disobedience. Then the Lord responds to their disobedience with his discipline. And that's what we see in verses 14 and 15. God gives them over to their plunderers. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. So if they're going to worship the gods of the nations, then God is going to let those nations have free reign to plunder his people. He withdraws his protection so that they can taste the consequences of their idolatry, so that they can sit in it and see what it feels like, what it smells like. And of course, they don't like that, and so they cry out for help. And the Lord is moved to pity for them, which is amazing That's what we see in verse 18. The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. Now, not necessarily because they were repentant. His pity doesn't necessarily flow from their repentance. There's very little repentance in this book. It's because He's a compassionate God who loves His children. It's like if you, you send your child to their room because they've done something wrong and they're in there crying and crying and crying, and this goes on for forever, 30, 40 minutes, and then you finally decide to go down and let them out. Not because they've learned their lesson, but because your heart breaks to see them that broken, right? That's kind of what happens here when God gives Israel the judges. He is trying to teach them a lesson, and He will keep teaching it until they get it. But in His mercy, He gives them a break every now and then. And, and gives them a judge. And that's the expression of his mercy in this book. That's where the title of the book comes from. He raises up judges to deliver them. That's the third step in the cycle deliverance. It's what we see in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. So, what is a judge? I mean, the book is called Judges, right? They're the main characters of the book. But what are we talking about when we talk about Judges? You know, for most of us, we hear that word, we're thinking of Judge Judy, right? Black robe, gavel, something like that, deciding cases and and so on. That's not quite the picture in the book of Judges. They do some of that. And in chapter 4, Deborah's deciding some disputes, right? So, there's some of that adjudication, But the main role that the judges play in Israel in this book is that of a deliverer. They're leaders and rescuers of God's people. They're called judges because their job is to bring justice, to bring justice, to make right what's wrong, and to lead God's people in righteousness, in covenant obedience. And usually making right what's wrong in this book means rescuing God's people out of their oppression. And so, they're called judges because they bring justice, if you, but, and, and that usually takes the, the shape of deliverance. So, if you look again at verse 18, whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. So, it's this delivering office by and large. But as we're going to see in this book the judges are ultimately an inadequate solution uh, for a couple of reasons. First, they become increasingly corrupt as the story goes on. So, the, the people who are supposed to lead Israel in righteousness become less righteous throughout the story, and so it's an inadequate solution. But the other reason, which is right here in our passage, is that as soon as the judge dies, guess what Israel does? They sin, even worse than they had the first time. And so, the judge just doesn't have the longevity to actually bring justice to God's people easily uh, either. And, and that's, the, that's the fourth step in that cycle of the judges, which triggers the whole thing to start all over again, and it keeps going round and round and round, the death of the judge. So, if you look at verse 19, but whenever the judge died, so judge shows up, Israel's delivered. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. Going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them, they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. And and that, too, is a phrase we're going to see again and again in this book. So-and-so judge dies. Once again, Israel does evil in the sight of the Lord. Forsaking the Lord does not end well. Forsaking the Lord does not end well. If you want to ruin your faith or ruin your church, step two is to forsake God and His ways. The irony today is that so many of the churches that are declining at at churches and traditions, that are declining today at breakneck speed, in this country, are those that a hundred years ago told us all that the church must change or die. Like, modern people don't believe in miracles anymore. So, you got to stop believing the miracles, stop teaching that science has proven people don't rise from the dead. And so, they got rid of the gospel, and they held on to the morality because the church must change or die. The result for those denominations is that if they continue declining at the same rate, they will be extinct in two decades. That's the rate of decline. That's sobering, right? And yet, we hear that same message again today, the church must change or die. Before they got rid of the gospel, now you have to get rid of the morality. People don't believe what the Bible teaches about marriage or sexuality or any of those kinds of things anymore. And so, if you want the church to survive, you have to get rid of that stuff. Much better if everyone does what is right in their own eyes. God calls us to cling to Him, to hold fast to Him and walk in His ways which, is, of course, is not easy to do, right? But we have something better than the judges. We have something better than the judges. The judges, by the book's own admission, were an inadequate solution. But in their inadequacy, they point us forward to something better. They point us forward to a king, and not just any king, a king who will actually establish righteousness for God's people. And a king who will deal with that problem that keeps re-triggering this thing to go over and over again, the death of the judge, a king who will finally conquer death, whose throne will last forever. That's the kind of king we have in Jesus. Remember His gospel. Cling to Him and walk in His ways. But Israel wouldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Did not do it. And so the cycle just kept coming back around to God's discipline. And God Himself weighs in in verses 20 to 22. Because this people have transgressed my covenant, that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed My voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. And again, that's the same place where the first introduction left us last week. God is not going to drive out the nations. And yet, notice more precision here. There's a reason. There's another reason He's going to leave them there. It's a little bit more specific than what we saw last week, and that's the idea that God is going to test Israel. So, so God's discipline on His wayward people is not merely punitive. It's also redemptive. He's not just getting them in trouble. He's trying to help them learn something. He's testing Israel to see where their loyalty is and to strengthen them through hardship. And when you get to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, the last part of the passage we're looking at this morning, we see that same word two more times, testing. God is testing His people. God's discipline has a purpose. The question is, will Israel be trained by it or not? I think you all know the answer to that one in this book. No. No, they won't. Which brings us to the third word in how to ruin your faith forfeit. Forfeit every second opportunity the Lord gives you. Left unchecked, a misplaced loyalty will create a missed opportunity. And that's what we see in verses 1 through 6 as Israel forfeits the Lord's kindness by ignoring His discipline. So, if you look at chapter 3, verse 1, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them, that is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before." So, again, there's more to God's discipline than just punishment. There is a redemptive element. Um, There is punishment, right? He's he's, he's punishing Israel for their covenant rebellion, but He's also teaching them. This next generation who didn't get to see firsthand God's saving work in driving out the nations in in Canaan, well, guess what? They're going to get a chance to see God's saving work in action now because the nations that remain are going to oppress them, and it's going to be ugly. And so, they're going to have a chance to learn to trust the Lord like their forefathers did. God is testing them to teach them, and and it's a test. It's not typically fun, right? None of us are excited about a test, but it's an opportunity to depend on the Lord and to redirect their loyalty and faith back to Him. But of course as we read in verse 6, it's not going to work. Again, this book only goes downhill each week. In this series, it will be worse every week from here till July. Just understand that. It gets bad. Verse 6, their daughters, they took to the daughters of the nations around them, they took to themselves for wives and their own daughters they gave to their sons Why does that matter? Last phrase, and they served their gods. Again, the generation of Joshua served the Lord. Every other time we see that word in this passage, they're serving some other god, and that's where it lands. They don't learn their lesson. They waste God's kindness. They forfeit their second and their third and their tenth chance such that by the end of the book, you're not going to be able to tell the difference between the Israelites and the Canaanites. Just as today in some circles, it's hard to tell the difference between the church and the world. But the Lord is kind. The Lord is kind. And though it's hard, just as He loved His children enough to discipline them in the book of Judges, so He loves His children enough to discipline them today. Now, understand that that the punishment we deserve for our sin has been dealt with fully and decisively on the cross. Right? So, what Christ did for us all of, all of God's holy, righteous anger against our sin, Jesus took that and dealt with it completely. It is finished. There's no wrath left for the believer in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, that's not what we're talking about here. God's discipline for His children is not the same thing for us on this side of the cross as His punishment on sin. He's dealt with our sin completely, but He still loves us. He's still jealous for our loyalty and jealous for our joy, and He knows that neither of those things can happen if we're giving our love to some other God. And so, He loves us enough to discipline His children today. We face hardship and suffering, testing and trial to grow us in our faith. Not to punish us for our sin, but to draw us to himself. And again, it's he does it out of his love. Which does not mean that every hardship we face is a direct result of some sin in our lives, nor does it mean that if I can just figure out what lesson I'm supposed to learn, then all of the hardship's gonna go away. That's not what the Bible teaches. Sometimes the hardship is just the fact that we live in a fallen world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. It's broken, right? But every trial just the same is an opportunity to learn from God, to grow in our faith, to nurture hope, to be strengthened for obedience, to see our Savior in action to feel His presence, to taste the satisfaction that He alone can provide. As the author of Hebrews tells us, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And so, the question is, will we be trained by it? Will we receive God's discipline or will we forfeit it like Israel in Judges? Don't forfeit God's grace by rejecting His discipline. If you want to torch your faith, that's another killer way to do it. Forget the Lord and His saving work forsake Him and His ways, and forfeit His kindness and discipline. Far better, far better is to remember the Lord and His saving work, to respond with faith and obedience, and to receive His discipline as from a loving Father. And if we know He loves us, if we know He loves us, we can rejoice even in hardship because it means He's not finished with us. He is still at work to form us into the image of His Son. As 1 Peter 1 reminds us, in this hope of salvation, you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold though it perishes, that perishes though it's tested by fire, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember, respond, receive. Those are three words that will strengthen your faith and strengthen the faithfulness of the church for generations to come, remember, respond, and receive to the glory of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess our incredible need for You. And Lord, we we feel that need as we look into this passage this morning. We're going to feel it more and more each week. But we praise You that You are a God who meets us in our need. You are a God who loves us enough not to just let us wander off and do our own thing, but who draws us back to You and to Your heart because You know there's nothing better for us and nothing that brings more glory to You. So, Lord, help us remember Your saving work. Help us remember who You are. Help us respond to You and Your work with faith and obedience to walk in Your ways through the power of Your grace. And help us receive Your discipline as from a loving Father, God, to know that even though it's hard, You are at work. You're drawing us closer to You. Lord, we desire to know You We want you to be honored in our lives, and so would you be at work and continue to be at work within us? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.